Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our new body image group for parents, which we're excited to announce begins on October 21st, 2019. This group will meet virtually on Monday evenings for six weeks, and it's designed for parents who want extra support working through their own body image concerns. So often we hear from our guests that kids are watching and learning from their parents. So parents need to start body positive parenting by looking at themselves. A lot of parents may feel like their own struggles with their body or food hold them back from being the best possible role models for their kids. If that sounds like you, this group is an amazing opportunity to get support in overcoming insecurity, body shame, and a troubled relationship with food so you can help your kids do the same. Spots are limited to make sure it's meaningful for everyone who participates. So let us know if you're interested at fullbloomproject.com slash course. Again, you can learn more and sign up for the group at fullbloomproject.com slash course. Welcome to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 34. We're joined this week by health educator extraordinaire Justine Ang Fonte, who is currently the director of health and wellness at the Dalton School in New York City, where she teaches health to the student, parent, and faculty communities. She also works as a consultant and speaker to schools and universities on intersectional and feminist-based sex education across the United States. We are so excited to share with you this fascinating conversation about why sex education at all ages, even the earliest ages, is so integral to body positivity in our kids. Welcome, Justine, to the Full Bloom Podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. We're so excited to have this conversation with you today, but let's start with you telling us and our listeners a little bit about you and what drew you to your work as a health educator. Sure. Uh, Well, I've been in this profession of teaching for 10 years. Eight of them have been specifically in health education. How I got to where I'm at was my first two years of teaching began in my teaching um, program where I was tasked with working with summer school students for uh, five weeks uh, who had not passed the eighth grade, and I was there to help them pass their math exams in Texas. And um, of the 24 students, four of them were already parents, two of them were currently pregnant, and they were in eighth grade. And um, in seeing how I wasn't able to really get them to achieve in math in the way that I thought um, was possible, I noticed that it was really the health disparities that were holding them back. And um, it really hit much more uh, salient points to that health gap when um, one of my students didn't show up for two of those five weeks. And when I kept trying to track her down and she finally came back to school, it turns out that um, she would be absent two weeks out of every school year when she was having her period. And no one had ever told her it was a period. No one ever told her that this was normal um, and is something that can be managed. 
Um, and as a result, she missed basically half the school year for the last three years. And this was why she was held back. So it was always frustrating for me to be someone who was trying to, quote, close the achievement gap, but nobody was really addressing the health gap. And um, as someone who was trying to really focus on math achievement, I knew I couldn't do that well if I didn't address the, the health issues they were faced with. And similar stories like that carried on to the placement school I was at in Hawaii, where a lot of students were just coming from homes that didn't know how to address healthcare and didn't know how to access healthcare. And that obviously, you know, marginalized them and their ability to achieve academically. And that's where I decided to continue with my two years to get my, my master's in education, but then continue afterwards to get a master's in public health and focus on health education, since it is definitely not prioritized enough in both public and private schools. Amen. I agree. And it's interesting. We just actually recorded an episode with a fertility awareness specialist, just talking all about how, just how unaware a lot of I mean, young girls are about even just like their, their bodies in that way. So it, it's fitting that we're following it up with this, this conversation with you. feels related. So one of our goals here at the Full Bloom Project is to try to expand how people understand health beyond weight or appearance, um, you know, kind of beyond looking healthy, right? I'm doing air quotes or eating, quote, perfectly healthy. All these things are culture as tangled up and equated with wellness and healthiness and even morality. So we'd just love to hear from you about your perspective. What does it mean to be a health educator? How do you define health? It's a big question. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of people define a health educator in various ways. Some require a certification in health education or a license for it. For me, I think to kind of meet that, I'd like to say that two grad school degrees give me the qualification of being a health educator. But I think deeper than you know the degrees or those credentials is really having a passion for promoting health in people that allows them to address the four following things. I'd say the first is that I'm able to get the people I'm working with to really respect their body's functionality. Number two, being mindful of who interacts with their body. Number three, having access to care. And lastly, four, embracing the idea that their body is deserving of kindness. And I feel like if I can check off those four boxes with my students or the people that are in my life that see me as their health educator, then I have successfully health educated. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a much more broader definition than um, I think that kind of pop culture we kind of understand as health and probably you interact with kids a lot on that topic, you know, that it's so much deeper than just a picture of someone drinking water or something like that. But one of the things that we know about you is that your work addresses sex education and healthy relationships, as you said, in one of those pillars, pillars of who interacts with your body. Um, and we want to speak to you really about why education, about sex and consent is really essential for body positivity. So I'd love for you to just do a little intro on, on that question. Why, why are they essential? Speaking about sex and consent for body positivity? Sure. I'll start with the definition I use with my adolescents that I teach as to what even sex positivity is. I tend to show them first a picture of that infamous scene from Mean Girls with the teacher in the gym with all the high school students saying, 
don't have sex because you'll get pregnant and die. Um, <laughs> and that is like the iconic sex ed in America, you know, picture that I think encapsulates a lot of like how sex ed is still being taught in 2019. And I see this as a perfect example of what sex negativity is. It's showing that when it comes to sexuality, only bad things can happen from it. Uh, we're not going to talk very much about it, if at all. And you should just not engage with your sexuality whatsoever. The outcomes of that are obvious. You know, we're not going to be able to know how to access care. We're not going to know who can or should interact with our body. We're not going to understand how our body works in terms of function. And we're not going to necessarily know our body's worth because of the breath that the sexual beings that we are um, make us. And so I like starting off with that picture by explaining that sex positive is the opposite of that and then go into like my official definition. And with students, I say that sex positivity is about positive attitudes around sex that includes respecting the choice to not have sex, if that is what the person opts for, accepting others' intimate practices so long as th that everyone consents and they feel safe, um, and also embracing the spectrum of sexual identities. And so when I start with that as the foundation, I can refer back to it with any lesson around identities, around consent, around gender desocialization, because all of those things are the things that are preventing us from really having fulfilled, safe, and pleasurable sexual lives. I, I wonder, just for our audience, can you clarify the definition of that? You said gender desocialization? Yeah. So gender socialization is gender stereotypes, gender norms. If you are um, assigned female at birth, you are expected to also express yourself in a feminine way. You're expected to identify also as a woman, and you're expected to only be attracted to males. That cis-normative approach is very limiting for people who don't fall under those categories. And so when we're embracing the spectrum of sexual identities, it includes people who are falling in love with all sorts of people, whether it's the same or different gender as their own. It's not being confined to the genitalia that they were born with. So it really allows people to be their authentic self and express themselves in ways that really are fitting to what makes them feel fulfilled and in turn safe. Um, but with a lot of that repression of who you authentically are, we have a lot of people making decisions that aren't for themselves, but for somebody else's goals or expectations. I'm, I'm just curious, do you know offhand, like, what percentage of health education, sex education that goes on in this country is inclusive of that ideal, <laughs> that like that ideology you're speaking of? I don't have a percentage, but I will say even if I were to simplify yeah. your question to um, how many people are teaching health education, period, that sure. isn't obesity prevention and drugs are bad, don't do it, is totally below <laughs> 20%. Mm. So of the 20% that maybe are teaching maybe a little bit more than just those two topics on obesity prevention and like uh, drug prevention, if you will, um, it's still very fear-based. So for even including sex education to their curriculum, it tends to be very fear-based, very much like the Mean Girls gym scene. Mm -hmm. um, only bad things are going to happen, or let's just not talk about it, or we're only going to talk about abstinence because it's realistic. And so that is, I think, what much of sex ed looks like out there. And again, that's about maybe 20%. And I would say those that are actually teaching comprehensive, inclusive, intersectional health education, I mean, we're talking probably 5% and below. Yeah. 
I'm glad I asked because I want to be mindful of how your expertise and your perspective is, it's rare. It's, it's hard to find. And you teach in a very progressive independent school or you work at a very progressive independent school in the city. And I'm just grateful that you're speaking with us today on a platform where parents and care providers that live in all sorts of parts of this country and beyond in, in the world may not have access to someone like you. So it was helpful to realize how how rare this is. But yeah, were you going to follow up on a question for Justine? Well, I think on that note, like we can't, as parents and listeners who are parents, we can't really rely on right now our kids learning this in school, you know, learning sex positivity and consent um, at all, really, in, in their health class in school. We can't really rely on that. So we need to be thinking about how to do that together. And, you know, one of the things that I'm just struck with for a minute, I want to intercept the conversation with this idea of you know, how interrelated body positivity is or body negativity is to this whole conversation about sex and how it all, you know, how adolescence is really a time when all of this is swirling around and how related I see in my practice the desire to be attractive and to attract not necessarily sex yet, but partners and interest, I would say, um, interest from their peers is in their body mm-hmm. and how hard it is to help them take care of their body in the face of feeling like their body needs to look a certain way in order to mm-hmm. uh, begin the process of kind of attracting others. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put that into the conversation so we can keep thinking about that relationship between health education and and sex positivity and and educating around sex and body body positivity. positivity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And on that note, I mean, we, we do have parents of all ages. So we're wondering if you can speak, you know, really to those two different groups, kids and teens, and what role do parents have as sex educators for young children at all? What do you recommend parents think about with young children? I, I would hope that parents of, uh, you know, of any age child recognize that they're actually the number one sex educator, um, even without whatever credentials, their child is going to listen to them first in their life. And they're going to, in, you know, a lot of what, what's going to come into play there is also the cultural aspects and the family values aspect. What a lot of parents don't recognize is that, that one of the number one most effective protective factors um, against risky behaviors is that there's a connectedness to their parent. But so, ma- so many parents don't feel equipped with the right information um, or with any information to be able to talk about this stuff. And then they put the onus on the school to cover it. And as we had talked earlier, with some maybe more anecdotal statistics, we don't have a lot of schools that are really taking this on in a comprehensive way. And so you have, therefore, no one talking to them about it. And you have these young people still accessing sex education, but it's coming from unreliable sources, whether they're Googling it or they're using pornography as their form of education, or they're just asking their friends who are getting it from Googling it or you know from porn. They're still going to get sex education. It just won't be necessarily the reliable, medically accurate fulfilling type of sex ed that makes them feel good about their bodies. And so I would hope that parents 
understand, first of all, the responsibility that they have, that they should be their, the number one sex educator. And if they don't have those resources, there are so many resources out there, including, you know, your podcast, including a lot of sex positive parenting resources that exist out there that can help them to, you know, include that language to help their child make the right uh, decisions for their body and the sexual being that they are. So let them know they're the number one sex educator um, in their child's life. Um, number two, I like parents thinking about these three words whenever they're thinking about how they want to bring up a sex ed conversation, which I hope is an ongoing conversation and not the talk one time ever. Um, it's their child's safety, their child's pleasure, and their child's fulfillment. If they can focus and center a lot of their parenting around those three things. One, their child is going to listen because it's not sounding fear-based like they often are hearing either from media or from maybe a closed-minded sex education program they're receiving. And it really keeps the conversation going in making sure that the child keeps their levels of scrutiny high in understanding what pleasure is. And I think this will get into some consent aspects, but I think a goal that parents should share with other sex educators is that we want our children to have safe, pleasurable, and fulfilling love lives. And we can start that conversation from the womb all the way to the tomb. As soon as they are, you know, helping them bathe themselves, we need to normalize the anatomical terms and not, can, you know, attach um, this derogatory um, sentiment towards genitals, but actually saying the words vulva, actually saying the words penis when they are, you know, bathing themselves as like a two-year-old and having them feel comfortable to say those words aloud and also teaching them that those particular parts have carried with them a very specific biological importance that also means that they are kept private and this is why hair grows around them and that it means that only certain types of people or people that you allow to be around those areas um, are in those areas when you've actually consented for them to be around those areas and so already at age two we're teaching them privacy and we're teaching them that their bodies are normal and it has a certain function that we want to protect and so I think already when we think of sex ed at two years old, parents are freaking out. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't want to be thinking about sex ed for their child because they're thinking of a condom going on a banana. And that's all they think sex ed is. But it's so much more than that, you know, all the way to, you know, how you're bathing them and having them, you know, like, okay, point to your eyes. Where's your hair? Point to your nose. Where are your lips? And then they kind of like, oh, but where's your, and they have some type of nickname depending on their culture for genitalia. And so... First and foremost, knowing that no matter how young your child is, it is not too early to be using the anatomical terms. If you're already doing that with other body parts, it's really no different. But if we continue with those nicknames or make them seem like they're dirty, they're going to think that there's something wrong with them um, and something that they won't know how to protect if we're not willing to actually engage in that conversation around them. So that's like first and foremost, I think what I would say is like labeling those terms accurately and using the medically accurate terminology for it. In terms of talking to them about healthy relationships, whether they're in second grade or they're in seventh grade, we want them to know what pleasure means in the, in the context of a friendship so that when the stakes are lower, it's easy to, you know, understand like, oh, well, my friend never asked permission before they want to borrow like 
I don't know, my pencil. They just take it from me. That's not a good friend. All the way to like my seventh grade, you know, partner wouldn't ask permission before, you know, holding my hand. They just assumed I'm probably okay with it. But we want them to understand boundary setting early on too, that if this person isn't a good friend, they're also probably not going to be a good partner. And then when we get, they get to be 17 years old, from like second grade to seventh grade to 17 years old, we want them to know that if this person isn't respecting their body and you haven't been practiced enough from you know second grade to be able to ask people for permission and claim the right for people to be asking permission um, to interact with your body, that that's not a person worthy of being near it. But I think the issue is we just don't want to talk about these things because we're, you know, thinking right away of intercourse as the only activity that is possible when it comes to intimacy. But intimacy is a lot more of a broader term that doesn't actually necessitate touching even. It means eye contact. It means healthy communication skills. It means, you know, talking about something with someone that makes you feel good about yourself. But if young people understand what pleasure means in in being treated right and that person makes you feel good about yourself, they're not going to lower that standard. But we don't start off with that high standard and we end up thinking like, well, I guess it's okay if this person just like does this because I've never had to like assert myself before and it's probably just too hard to do that. So I just, you know, it's fine. And on the other hand, other people, like for worst case scenario, the perpetrator doesn't understand understand boundaries because they don't know what signs to even look for. Well, they didn't say no, so it must be okay because we're in a no means no world as opposed to a only an enthusiastic yes means yes. Mm -hmm. And those two frameworks are very, very different. No does mean no, but it doesn't allow room for, what about a forced no, the obligatory no, the I'll feel guilty if I don't say yes. There's not enough discussion about those nuances. If we focus on the only a yes means a yes, anything but the enthusiastic yes, is by default a no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that makes such a big difference. And if we can claim that and really assert that, it is a representation of um, being mindful of who interacts with your body and also understanding that your body is deserving of that type of, of kindness and treatment. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I think we'd really like to just get even more practical with you um, because this stuff is so hard for parents. And, you know, when we get back, we'll, we'll dive back in. Okay. Sure thing. I'm Isis Ward, a body positive parent and kids apparel director at Nike. I'm also a proud patron of the Full Bloom podcast. In both my personal and professional life, I'm constantly striving to be more aware of the social and cultural influences in our kids' lives. The lessons I've learned from the Full Bloom podcast have helped me be a more conscious parent and a business leader. This is why I became an official patron and hope you will too. For less than the price of a latte, you too can support this incredible mission and keep the Full Bloom podcast going strong so that more of our children can fully bloom. As a gift for your patronage, the Full Bloom Project will send you their ABC Guide to Body Positive Parenting. This interactive resource is chock full of research and practical tips. It's been an invaluable resource to both my family and my team at Nike. To learn more about how you can claim your guide and join me in supporting this very important project, please visit fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And we're back. I want us to get really practical because I'm, I'm honestly sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, t- a two-year-old in the bath, I have no problem with that. Like that, 
makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. And I could even imagine a parent that's new to this idea, you know, like with your two-year-old, just getting a little bit more comfortable, sort of starting to use proper names for bodies and try to relate to the word penis, no different than you relate to the word nose. And I guess I could personally imagine as they get older, as kids get older, a lot starts to come up for parents and you get pushed back from your kids and want to talk to you about this stuff. So I'd love to just get any thoughts you have about like if a parent comes to you and is like, Justine, I'm into it. I want to initiate this conversation with my, I don't know, seven-year-old or my well, start with seven. Seven-year-old, right. Like, how do I get started? Where should we be? Should it be casual? Because you're, you know, you're saying it shouldn't be the talk. It should be a series of talks. But, like, get let's get really specific if we can. Sure. So I live in New York City, which um, is full of sex education that you wouldn't even think of. There's curriculum all over the city. And I like recommending that parents use the city as their home curriculum to either talk about what not to do or just use it as the visual aid to get that conversation going. Maybe you're passing by uh, a gym and the way that this gym wants to advertise themselves looks like a pretty sexual innuendo type of picture. And, you know, asking your child like, oh, you know, what do you think is being shown here? Right. But I think talking about, you know, either advertisements that they're seeing on billboards, commercials that they're watching, movies that they're seeing, TV shows, you can talk so much about the gender dynamics, the power dynamics that are at play, whether consent was asked of or not in that Disney scene between the Disney princess and the Disney prince, how they could have asked for consent in that scene and it still be a perfectly fine scene, celebrating the scenes that are actually incorporating consent and it actually enhanced that moment. There's just so much out there that you can use as um, your curriculum. And I mentioned that as my recommendation because rarely are children who maybe didn't get much sex ed at home, like before, let's say seven years old, are going to feel brave enough to just come up to their parent and be like, hey, mom, dad grandma, whoever I'm living with, I need help with my sexuality. Like, let's talk about it. No one's going to have that. Like, I, I, I yet to meet that child. This is a very common concern for parents. So like, I don't, my child isn't going to come up and ask me those questions. And this is why you have an anonymous question box in your classroom. But what do I do at home, Justine? I get it. Use a commercial. There's so much you can do with that commercial. Be intentional with the types of books that you're bringing home. Um, there's so many great sex ed books for kids. Even just the fact that I said sex ed books for kids, they're out there and they're excellent. In some countries, they're banned, but that's because those countries have a lot more of a sex negative approach. But they exist in, in the US and that's a great um, way to get it going without you having to you know, come up with your long-term plan of lessons you know, for the dinner table. Mm -hmm. um, but just like, oh, let's read chapter one together. Oh, wow, we usually don't see a picture of that that often. How does that make you feel? And there you go, right? And you get them, and I think the where, you know, how do you feel about this? You want to gauge and get a baseline of their their feelings on these things so that you can get a metric of maybe two months down the road, um, how they're feeling. They're like, oh, now this is so normalized and it's no big deal. As opposed to this like taboo word that I can't even say, you know, I, if I see it, it's something bad and I feel guilty of it. The truth of the matter is like between eight to 11 years old, children are already starting their exposure to naked bodies through porn. So if we're not getting in there before eight years old, they're going to use that as their template for what a body is quote supposed to look like and what that body is capable of doing. 
to another body. And that's, um, a, and that's a great segue to just the, the conversation around like the digital age and how impactful it is on our kids' understanding of relationships, body, consent. It sounds like that statistic is, you know, surprising, I think, for me to hear. 8 to 11 is really when you can kind of expect your kid to make contact with digital information about this. So... I would love to know more about that. Like, how, how is this actually impacting our kids? What should we, as parents, know about that? Um, they should know that their child is absolutely exposed to porn, uh, unless they're, like, I guess, under eight years old. But the chances are of them being exposed to porn is already in the high 90s by, you know, eight to 11 years old by virtue of just have, having access to a smart device. And I'm not saying that this these children are proactively seeking it out. There are pop-ups. There are, you know, friends that are just putting a screen in front of their face and saying, look what I got. It could have been texted to them. It could have been sent to them and they accidentally opened it. There are so many ways that this stuff is happening, whether it's on purpose or not, they're still seeing it. Now, especially when we're looking at the eight to 11 you know, year old body, they're either starting or currently in puberty and their body's already changing so much that they don't usually have enough people talking to them about what normal looks like. And they revert to those pop-ups or what they're searching as their dictionary for, okay, this is, what's, this is how it's supposed to look. To be like very specific, I've taught a fifth grade class of students who were convinced that they weren't supposed to have hair down there if they were a girl because they never saw any hair down there or they were told there isn't hair down there. And so as they started to actually grow pubic hair, they thought there was something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And so we have these young people that are already you know, feeling insecure because their body is changing in fast ways that they've never seen before. And no one's talking to them about it. And so when they go and try to get information about it, they're seeing a body that looks very different than theirs. And they're thinking now there's something wrong with them. That is straight up body negativity Mm -hmm. because they are seeing something different and they're seeing that being what good is because that's what they continually see. In the Mm -hmm. same way that we're looking at, you know, just like when we talk about body image, 1% of bodies um, in the world look like what we're seeing in fashion magazines. And yet it seems like it's so normal that everyone's body is like that. So if mine doesn't look like that, then I'm the weird bad one. And now I feel bad about my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the same thing goes when it comes to pornography um, and b- the bodies we're seeing on screen. But if you have a child that at two years old is getting really woke with sex education from their home environment and they come across porn by eight years old, they're going to see this and laugh at it and be like, that's not what a body looks like. <laughs> or like, I know a body can't do that. And like, why don't they have hair down there? Everyone has hair down there. But they're not getting that education early early enough to be able to be literate when they are exposed to it. It's so interesting. I I will just share this anecdote. A a journalist contacted me at one point just to weigh in on a a topic like the, the issue of the age cutoff for boys going into women's locker rooms. Like she she was writing a piece Mm. about it. And so we had an interesting conversation and she was telling me that she really likes to be able to take her little boy into the women's locker room because she really wanted him to see real women's bodies. Mm. And she was asking me like how I felt about that. And I was like, wow, this is really tricky because (laughs) on one hand, I don't know that we should be (laughs) 
you know, if the women consented, maybe, <laughs> you know, um, speaking of consent, even though he's probably an innocent six-year-old boy, but I really felt for her because she was saying like, I don't want my body to be the only real body mm. he's ever sees again. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I thought it was a creative solution to bring him into a locker room. And of course she's being told he's too old now. I guess I'm sharing it and also kind of, you know, kicking the, the, the ball over to you, Justine, to see like what somebody to do. Like if we really do want to keep our kids aware of what normal bodies look like and we're going to respect other people's privacy by not bringing them into locker rooms. Um, right. What are some of our options? Um, well, I, I really love a lot of the sex ed books that are out there. Um, Roby Harris is one of my favorite children's books, sex ed authors. And what I love a lot about her illustrations is that they are so realistic from different body types to even showing the tan lines of the underwear that a person would have been wearing when they are naked and you can see them. Um, we often don't see that, you know, you know, as well. She has accurate depictions of, you know, pubic hair actually existing, whether it be, you know, straighter hair, finer hair, textured hair, different colored hair. It's so realistic and it's all in cartoons. So for, you know, a fifth that's looking at this, uh, they're seeing an, a, a cartoon that might be jarring only because they're not used to seeing naked cartoons. But what I tell the students and their parents uh, when we're using this curriculum in, in the schools that I'll, I'll work with is that would you rather your child see a cartoon version first of this or would you rather them see it um, banging up against somebody else on a screen while also not having realistic or more typical types of bodies involved. Mm -hmm. They're going to get it no matter what. So why not give it to them early in the way that is like safest, accessible and accurate to begin with? So in lieu of the women's locker room approach, there are books that are out there that do <laughs> a great job showing different body types. I think the hard part is without being intentional with the type of literature or even media that you're putting in front of your child, they are going to be exposed to a very specific body type. Even ones that are clothed, you know, it's going to be the same thing. Um, and you have to put in a lot of extra effort at making sure that they are exposed to others or at least pairing those efforts with letting them know that there are so many different ways a body can look and health in terms of those body types can look like many different sizes and beauty looks like a lot of other things besides whatever is closest to being white. Um, there's so much you know, emphasis on specifically white bodies being the beauty ideal. And of course, when we're thinking of you know, bodies of color, they will literally never achieve it, yet will do whatever they can to maybe change their body against their you know, genetic body blueprint to look a way that is not going to ever happen. And then as you both definitely know, there are so many negative physical um, consequences as a result. The same goes for attraction. And so I think it's just important for parents to have the conversations, whether they're watching a commercial that is depicting yet another body type that is so similar to all the other ones they're seeing to say like, but you know, not all bodies look like that, right? And remember that book I read you in set when you were seven, like showed other ones and you know, you've met so-and-so and you've met so-and-so, whatever it might be. But I think just making sure there's conversation, there's just not even enough conversation to be able to let students, young people know that there are possibilities beyond what they're seeing on a screen or in a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I don't know if you've, if you've read the book American Girls. No, 
it's just a really interesting book about just the digital age and pornography and how impactful it is, particularly around the teenage years um, in kind of the whole spiral of, of consent and who they are, you know, their own image of who they are as people. And I think what we really just don't, haven't quite gotten woke to as parents yet um, is how we need to be talking about this really Mm -hmm. early, you know, that this needs to just be part of our conversation, the different type of bodies thing, but just sex in general, because it's just, like you said, there's just not enough conversation happening. And so the education is coming from somewhere that we just really don't want the education Mm -hmm. to be coming from. Right. Yeah. And that, and that idea of pleasure as being one of your, kind of pillars that you were describing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important in that I think there's a nice mirror with like what we talk about here in terms of intuitive eating and making sure that, you know, healthy eating doesn't just include like macronutrients, but that healthy eating really includes pleasure eating as well and being able to enjoy cotton candy if you like it, where there's zero nutrition, but maybe a ton of pleasure and wonderful memories associated with the experience. So, I think that there's often a parallel process to be had. Um, Do you want to do the honors of asking Justine our last question today? Yeah, yeah. We'd love to leave the podcast, end the podcast with your take on if each parent listening to this podcast today took away and did one thing regularly, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? (sighs) Particularly with um, sexuality topics, and the idea that there has to be one talk. I want parents to know that there are ways to make it less intimidating, less daunting, because if you're putting all the weight on one talk, that's a lot of pressure for you to like crush it, the one opportunity (laughs) you have. And it's also not even the best practice. So instead of trying to devise the contents of your 100 minute talk, um, I want, parents to think of 101 minute talks that they can do with their child around this and it alleviates the pressure it allows it to be frequent hopefully regular and use a variety of different sources to um, spark the conversation so that their child is just talking to them about it it builds that connection between um, you and your child Um, it allows them to you know share a little bit more safely their feelings but if you're waiting for them to be 16 to have this talk, you have 15 years of unlearning to have to include in your talk that they've absorbed um, from probably inaccurate sources and unhealthy sources. Um, So I would say alleviate the pressure that you're putting on yourself and think of 101 minute talks. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise. And we will definitely, um, link to some of the resources that you you mentioned because I'm sure parents listening will want to buy those books and definitely and also I know from your consulting website I've seen some videos it seems like you have a handful of those on there and I'm sure people would like to take a look so if that's all right with you we'll we'll link that as well I'd love that wonderful well thank you so much yeah of course So that's our show. 
We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during the episode, so please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can continue producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.